Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to, to this talk. Uh, my name is Vincent Chow. I'm an associate professor here at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Law. Uh, I work primarily in, uh, on, on, on uh, criminal law and, and punishment. Um, and excited to uh, talk today about rights, solidarity, and the power to punish in uh, states of emergency. Um, I'll turn it over to, to you, Corey. Hi, uh, everyone. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, I'm Corey Bretschneider. I'm professor of political science at Brown University. Uh, I, my latest book is called The Oath in the Office. It's a guide to the Constitution for future presidents, and it's partly about uh, what um, presidents need to know about the Eighth Amendment limits on cruel and unusual punishment. And I've also uh, worked on uh, the political philosophy of punishment, and most recently, uh, I think largely thanks to Vincent, uh, participated in a symposium at Toronto Law School, and I've written a piece called The Democratic Theory of Punishment, which I might mention today as well. Um, uh, uh, Corey, you, you need to write a book about how current presidents can obey the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a lost cause. That's one of yeah, my... Fair, my fair enough. <laughs> enough. Um, so I just wanted to maybe take a few minutes to set up our, our conversation today. Um, uh, one of the, I guess the theme of the, con uh, the conversation is sort of the um, liberal rights in the time of the pandemic. Um, and so one of, just by way of setting things out, I mean, what, what we observed when the, when the pandemic first rolled in into our shores in uh, March was uh, a wide range of sort of really basic um, fundamental liberal rights, uh, movement, freedom of movement, freedom of association, uh, privacy, uh, religious exercise, uh, you know, uh, being radically curtailed uh, quite quickly um, by sweeping executive announcements. Um, and so uh, one of the things that I found very striking about this was that um, rights discourse, which had previously been quite, you know, uh, liberal, liberals were quite firm on insisting on rights, uh, individual rights as a limit to government, rights discourse seemed to collapse almost immediately uh, in the face of uh, the pandemic, uh, um, government ordered shutdowns, limitations on on, on gatherings, all these sorts of things. Um, and a lot of the traditional sorts of um, ways of thinking that philosophers have thought about rights, rights as trumps, uh, rights as side constraints, so, uh, preventing the government from acting, even in ways that are meant to facilitate the common good, um, rights are meant to limit the, the government's ability to sacrifice an individual's interests. Um, to achieve those aims, those all seem to kind of fall by the wayside. Um, um, more of a, in a more legalistic kind of uh, uh, framework. Um, here in Canada, for instance, we, we acknowledge that constitutionally protected rights can be defeated, but they, they have to go through a fairly rigorous testing process for them to be defeated. The government has to show that there's a rational connection, meaning that we have to know that, uh, or have really good reason to think that the policy is going to work, it's going to do the thing that, that it's meant to do, that it's proportionate, that the costs to rights are worth the benefits, that it's necessary, there's no other um, uh, uh, alternative. Um, and these kinds of things require some evidence, require a fair degree of certainty, which, you know, certainly in the early days of the pandemic, and arguably even now, we, we, we really lack. We're not sure, we weren't sure what the best approaches were, what, what actually worked in slowing the pandemic. We weren't sure what the benefits were. We didn't know what the costs were, the long-term costs. Uh, and certainly the policy space was completely wide open. It was very hard to say what's necessary under those, those circumstances. So I guess that I just wanted to maybe sort of put that out there. And um, 
query I want to maybe see, is that your perception as well? And um, yeah, what's your I mean, take on this? I think crises are a sort of important moment in thinking about the fundamentals and they could go one of two ways. The first, I think it's exactly right that in emergency situations, uh, there's a temptation, especially absent strong leadership to sort of think, okay, we're not in the space anymore of basic rights. This isn't a normal moment. We're suspending the constitution. And I've heard a lot of that talk. And of course, I think for consequentialists, you know, that's just revealing the way things have always worked and do work. And yes, of course, in an emergency, you put aside the rights. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that would be a mistake. We're facing all sorts of emergencies, not just the, the COVID one, but of course, there's an environmental emergency. And to say that because we're facing the, the true prospect of environmental destruction, there are no more rights, that, that would be a, there are consequentialists who think that, but I think that would be way too strong a, a reaction. So I guess I'm looking too, I think that what you're saying is, is in a way the default maybe of many leaders, but of other moments too, that might open the possibility to see the opposite reaction, the kind of uh, policies that might open our imagination to see that rather than decreasing the amount of rights that we enjoy, uh, we might increase them. So the way I've been thinking about it, the more optimistic side, I think there's the, the worrying side, which you've exactly identified and sort of motivates us to push back. But on the other side, um, you know, pe people in, in the specific context that we're talking about today, at least in, in New York and around the country, there's a recognition that given the circumstances that we're yeah. in, uh, we have to release people from prison, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we've had, you know, significant numbers of releases uh, around the country in New York. Um, and to me, although that has the structure maybe of we're in an emergency, so we have to do something different, it also opens the possibility to begin to think about punishment more generally and alternatives to our incarceration, the rights of individuals within the prison. And thankfully, that is part of, I think, what's going on. It could be framed either as an emergency or as a we need to protect people in prison from death and they, they right. retain rights to life. So I guess I, I think of this moment as offering both possibilities, the, the sort of, I'm not a consequentialist, I'm a big defender of the idea that punishment can't just be thought of in terms of, of deterrence and in terms of effect, but in, in terms of the fundamental status and respect for rights. And so I think that we've got to find ways to reframe the decisions that are being made, the intuitively necessary decisions, and think about whether they might, even though they could be move us towards a, a world of consequentialism reframed as a sort of rights discourse. I don't know, am I being too optimistic? Well, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess what I, I, I think I might just have a, a less sophisticated view. Just I was just really struck by um, the way in which public discourse, public norms shifted so quickly, right? So in February, which now feels like a lifetime ago, but in February, um, for someone to say, you're not allowed to sit on a, on a park bench, right? You're not allowed to meet your friends in the park or on the sidewalk, and I'm gonna call the police on you if you do, yeah. which, which people in Toronto did do. They did call the cops for, on their neighbors. For seeing, that would have been seen as a gross violation of someone's, someone's rights. Mm. Um, and that just changed right away. So in my neighborhood, for instance, uh, around Toronto, people hang up signs in their windows saying, we're all in this together, which is a very uh, a welcome message. It's a message of solidarity as opposed to the kind of what I associate with rights or individualism, you know, 
get off my lawn, my fence. This, this is my domain for decision-making. It's yeah. sort of the opposite of solidarity. And so I saw that shift happen very quickly. Um, and I, I, just, I think that is very striking. So there, the, the, narr the narrative that you were um, trying to distance yourselves from, like the consequentialist story, like, well, this maybe just shows that rights were really just kind of a smokescreen or, or, um, or, or, or something like that is not a very deep um, commitment to rights, does seem to fit that, that narrative a bit. Um, but it just, I'm, I'm sort of interested at the level of popular perception of, of, of rights. Um, why do we not see people going to court about this? Why do we not see, so from a lawyer's point of view, you think the courts are the ones you're gonna, you're gonna go to and complain about your rights violations, but nobody seemed to be interested in doing that. I mean, we, you know, one, one thing that we've got going on is a transnational conversation. Of course, you're in Canada and I'm, I'm here in the United States. And we, we were seeing some, some lawsuits. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm going to sort of invite the difficulty because I'm going to talk about the good and bad lawsuits. I mean, to me, the worrying version of rights um, were religious institutions early in the pandemic when there really was a danger of spread. Yeah. saying that they had to uh, have services inside and that otherwise there was a violation of their religious freedom. And, um, you know, some states um, uh, have uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act with uh, ver versions of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which have upped the level of um, concern about policies that adversely affect religion. So it's not totally out of the question that, the, that some of those cases were going to win or there were other... Uh, I believe there was a case that the court didn't take, but that the, the argument was about um, uh, the, the, the federal right of free exercise of religion. And the argument was that there's a kind of animus in, in these forms of legislation. Now, the sensible thing for the court to do in th those situations, I think, is to do the kind of balancing, our version of, we don't call it balancing, but we have a more categorical approach, but we certainly have the idea that a more fundamental, that there is a right on the one hand, and then there are policy interests that can override the right at any level. And certainly whatever level I think we're talking about, whether it's um, the question of whether it's rational, which is our lowest level of um, need in, in thinking about a justifiable policy, or even if we were to return to our earlier jurisprudence or the jurisprudence of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, where you need a really good reason, a compelling mm -hmm. reason that's narrowly tailored in order to overcome the right. The pandemic to me inside especially answered that. And the danger of the spread inside that we were seeing from church services, from choirs in particular because of singing uh, and the possibility of holding these services online, I, I, I think opened that possibility. Now, conservatives who were defending the idea that their rights were violated push back against the more recent protests and they say, hey, there's a kind of selectivity that's going on here. And if government's distinguishing between good and bad speech yeah. good and bad beliefs. Now that's a real problem. So that is a challenge I think that we have to answer. I mean, to me, one real answer to this, I haven't heard this as much, although I take the challenge seriously, is the, the protests about George Floyd were outside. They had masks. Um, there was an attempt at least at social distancing. And, and, you know, that kind of thing can make the difference. So a church, you know, to, to draw the parallel that wanted to meet outside and to have masks and to do social distancing, uh, that's fine. Or, um, you know, and I think at the same time, a protest that wanted to happen inside, you know, in, in the midst of closings might also be yeah. legitimately held accountable. So, 
you know, we have to, I guess, not throw everything out the window precisely because at least what I'm trying to do here in, in comparing the two or distinguishing, there, there still are rights to be treated as equals in a pandemic. And yeah. really throwing it out the window might just say, well, one speech is good, one is bad. And that's the kind of reasoning we definitely don't want to do. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I mean but I guess what's, what's striking though is that, um, so for instance, think about when, one thing that I, I, I thought about is so in the, in the criminal justice side, progressives, for instance, have a long, for a long time complained about uh, broken windows policing um, yeah. and stop and frisk policies. And one way of sort of thinking about those complaints is that these are uh, forms of aggressive policing that interfere with the liberty, the rights of especially minority men to move about in public freely. Yeah. Right, that they just they can't move about because they constantly get harassed. So you might think that's a very fundamental, hard-won right of movement. And so that right was curtailed um, when the pandemic struck. And so on the on the conservative side, you see the sort of religious liberty rights being argued. And it was striking that you didn't see something similar on the progressive side. Saying, hey, what about my hard-won right to move about? Um, which 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 was, was striking. I mean, one of the things. The, so that's one uh, issue that I found striking. The other one I, I want to uh, put on the table here is um, how this affects how we think about the case for limiting rights. So as you know, as you say, in, in, in the United States and Canada, we have slightly different ways of thinking about this. But you know, they're they're ultimately I think fairly fairly similar. So nobody, very few people think that rights are ab just absolute. Right? Um, but what's very striking to me is like now we have a sense, oh, okay, so in large scale indoor gatherings where people are singing or talking for a long period of time, you know, masks seem to work. But early on in, you know, in March, I think it's hard to overstate the, uns the uncertainty, right? We just, we weren't sure yeah. uh, how bad this was gonna be and we weren't sure what was actually gonna work. And so how do you, how do you make the case that rights have to be potentially quite seriously infringed given such extraordinary uncertainty. I mean, if you're a consequentialist, it, I think it's a more straightforward way of you know, doing expected costs. But if you're, if you're not a consequentialist, it seems a little bit trickier. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be that second part of the test that you were talking about that we have to pay a special attention to. On the one hand, you know, in both cases, there's a worry about the spread of COVID. And so there's a sort of compelling interest, you might say, even in, um, in stopping the spread and in maybe limiting protest or the exercise of religion, mass gatherings generally. And then the question to me is, well, what's the best way to go about, what's the most direct way and the narrowest way to go about that without limiting the right? And, you know, my worry is that people will say, oh, just get rid of all protests. And that, mm. that can't be. And um, so, you know, that's why I was trying to distinguish, I think, yeah. between the inside and outside. And the Floyd protests are so necessary. I do support them, but I don't want to defend them because they're good. You know, I've got to come up with some principle for why the right has right. been And so that's my way of thinking. Am I gerrymandering it? I'd be open to discussion for people who think that I am, but I, I think that's a fair and sensible distinction. I mean, we did say, I don't want to lose track of the president of the United States' approach, which I would call it's not really consequentialist because it wasn't in, in defense of the nation as a whole or the greatest number, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number or anything like that. It was the sense of the greatest pleasure for one person. For one person, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> sort of Hobbesian, you know, he is the sovereign. Um, but the recklessness with which the military was called out in the uh, front of, connects, I guess, to speech and, and, and religion. 
in front of this church to clear it for a photo op was really frightening. And you see why in the United States, although we have fundamental rights to free speech, rights to petition the government and rights to assembly, uh, we also have these very dangerous statutes that um, can be read, and I'll say something a little more about it, to just override those rights. And he was reading this Insurrection Act uh, mm -hmm. today that he could use the military really at will to restore order. And, um, you know, I've been trying to say, hey, wait a second, there are rights here. And uh, there are these earlier memos from the Bush Justice Department that read the statute narrowly precisely to avoid the the, the revocation of rights. But so, I mean, it just adds another policy layer to what we we're talking about. There's a worry generally about suspending rights in times of emergency. And then when you have these statutes combined with a, uh, I would not call him a, a successful dictator, but he has the aspirations as he's told us many times of dictatorship armed with this statute, uh, that really is a, a keg, uh, a, yeah. a, a dynamite waiting to go off. And so, um, it's even more important to sort of stress those limits. Now, when you look at the statute, just to get a little wonky about this, uh, you know, it's really designed for the Eisenhower-Kennedy instance where a president is coming in to protect rights, not limit them. And yet, um, that's not what this president was doing. It would have been one thing, by the way, if he was saying, look, the police are attacking African-Americans in this society at dangerous numbers. I'm going to come in to protect their civil rights. That's not what he's doing. He's coming in to limit the protests. Yeah, right. um, so I think that's another dimension here of where uh, we have to think about, about rights discourse. The connection to punishment, of course, is that these protests are all about um, a deeply racist form of policing and the protection of police who are uh, murdering people based on, um, you know, this way. Yeah. Based on yeah. I mean, I see, I mean, I see a very similar kind of uh, uh, um, dialectic playing out in the theory of punishment in that in normal times, uh, you often have um, uh, activists and theorists and lawyers uh, uh, saying, well, criminal law should be the last resort. This is what's called the ultima ratio principle. It should be the last resort when only if you've tried everything else, only if you really can't protect society in any other way should you resort to this really super harsh uh, uh, um kind of a way of, of dealing with uh, social problems. But whenever there is, say, um, some horrible child sex crime or something like that in the news, all of a sudden you see criminal law is not the last resort, it's the first resort. You know, people are angry, they want to see, they want their pound of flesh, you know, you have terrible policies being enacted without a lot of thought and, you know, a lot of hysteria and fear. I shouldn't say hysteria, I should say you know, just understandable fear and anxiety and things like this, but it can translate fairly quickly into, um, I would say, suboptimal uh, uh, policy. Um, so I see a very similar kind of dynamic in the criminal law context. And more generally, I mean, one of the things that you you raise, I want to uh, sort of circle back around to, is that, um, of course, uh, uh, we we haven't we we have seen uh, national crises before. And the track record of sort of um, uh, of executive uh, untrammeled executive power in times of crises, when the, the sense is that rights kind of go away, is not great. Uh, when we think about Korematsu in, in the World War II kind of era, uh, those the Japanese internment cases, or we think about the post 9/11 type of uh, 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 cases, I think those are kind of low points really for us. And so. Um, 
this does feel a little, the pandemic does feel a little bit different than, than say 9-11, but it, it, at the same time, I, I do want to say, well, you know, um, people say who lived through the bombing of Pearl Harbor might have had some fears and anxieties in kind of the way that when, you know, mid-March, this pandemic started, came onto our radar screen, people had a lot of it, and they react in certain ways. And uh, are we going to, in say 50 years time, look back at this in the same way that we look back now at Corp Matsu and say, boy, that was a, that was regrettable. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the use of the military, you know, if it's true that the criminal law is a last resort that we should worry about the state at its most coercive, even another level up is the military because they are not trained to respect rights. And when you have these kind of fake military justifications and Korematsu for those who are following and who don't know, it is the case in which FDR issues an executive order and aided by Earl Warren rounds up Japanese Americans explicitly based on their national origin. And the Supreme Court knows that. They know it's a, a presumptive equal protection violation. And yet they say, oh, this is a national emergency war is on. And my worry is that, you know, he did back down in the military case, uh, partly, I think, because of internal pressure, because of the military publishing, um, former and current military speaking out against the use of the military, but certainly Trump's temptation was to do that. And uh, then we are in a world that looks dangerously like Korematsu. And as much as I would hope that the court would say, uh, hey, you know, you can't do that. We still have basic rights, even in a pandemic. We have this frightening precedent of the Supreme Court putting security really over all rights. Now, what's particularly gross about the Korematsu case is that you know, the evidence now, and my understanding is that they, they had it at the time, is that they knew there was no actual security rationale, that maybe that was the goal, but there was no connection between the roundup and safety. And yeah. so it was just a ruse. And I, you know, that was true here too, the idea that you were going to need the military to come in to quell violent protests, when really what he was trying to do clearly was to, to quell peaceful protest. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that has a frightening parallel. Now, what would the Supreme Court have done? You know, you and I, would be saying Korematsu, the court technically reversed, you know, apologized basically for Korematsu in the travel ban case at the same time that they upheld what was essentially a similar policy. Um, and what would they do in this case? I don't know. I mean, I can't say with confidence that there are five votes to say this is unconstitutional use of the military or violation of the statute. They could very well say, oh, you know, Eisenhower did it and it's a national emergency and we have to defer to the president. Yeah. So that, that's why, I mean, we're in, in really heated agreement about why the pandemic is so dangerous that it, it allows yeah. for these instances. And it's exactly the opposite of what, what the protests are about, is limiting the power of the state to abuse yeah. people. Well, I, I guess I want to push back on you a little bit on sure. this, Corey. So in, 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 in that, so I, I think I agree with you on sort of the, the protest case on, on the, these, uh, the Black Lives Matters types of uh, uh, issues, right? Um, I'm thinking now about say earlier stage of the response when we were just shutting down businesses, telling people you can't go outside, you can't meet your friends mm -hmm. on the sidewalk. Um, and even that, even though those are rights violations still, and I, I, I think there's a case to be made that said that says, look, um, uh, you know, governments when faced with huge but uncertain risks are should have the freedom to act even in ways that violate rights. So even if, you know, I can imagine 50 years time, say scientists go back and review the data and it turns out that say prohibiting people from gathering in parks was not, was kind of pointless. Suppose, and I can say, look, they, there was this, that turns out to have been wrong. Was that, does that show the rights um, were, un, 
were wrongly limited, that, that, that someone sues about this and they have a, a legitimate cause of action here. And it seems like, well, you, you, the government should have some leeway to say, look, you know, yes, it was uncertain. Yes, we can't demonstrate necessity, but we had to, we had to, this, there was a serious threat and we had to exercise, um, uh, uh, take a lot of options, act, act under great uncertainty. Um, and so that might warrant some modification of rights. And, but then I, I think then the, the worry is that that genie once out, out of the bottle could basically argue for greater deference to executive power in lots of contexts. They don't, yeah. So that's, that's my concern, I think. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That is a little different. Um, I guess I'd respond by saying, you know, and now maybe I'm going to sort of be more the American constitutional lawyer and you'll be the Canadian. I, I, we'll see how it plays out. But I mean, to me, you know, all liberties are not the same. You've really got to look at the specifics. So are you, you know, limiting protests like by a few weeks, you know, and saying just hold off? Um, are you limiting church services, you know, by a few weeks while we get the data in when we think or are you targeting speech? You know, I don't want George Floyd protests, right? right? I don't want um, Protestants to be able to hold services. Those seem to me different in kind, you know, that, that um, the temporary suspension of shopping, for instance, um, to take an easier case, um, I think is just not the same as the suspension of a protest. And even the way that we might suspend church services and protests once we're in the court rights, um, I think we can do so in a way that's less or more violative. So yeah. another way to put it is I'm not convinced that shutting down stores, for instance, and, you know, I tend not to be a huge defender of property rights as, as fundamental rights, mm -hmm. but the more we're in the domain of commerce and property, the more willing I'm to say, okay, that that's one thing. And, right. you know, I get more worried about what you're saying, definitely, the more we're talking about. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you want to push back against that? Too, that oh, no, I, I think that, that, that makes sense. I mean, I, um, I, I think from um, um, someone with consequentialist sort of intuitions, this is all very sensible. I mean, sort of says, you know, you, you know, the, the, the expected harms are, are lower. So the leeway for actions also a little bit um, uh, different. One thing I, I did want to sort of circle back to was, you know, you had, you had painted a sort of optimistic picture of, of rights culture, uh, or, or I should say rights, and I want to say rights culture, um, mm -hmm. In even in the face of a great national or even deep global emergency, and one one way um, I think this might manifest, so to tell a more optimistic story about the survival or indeed the flourishing of rights, is that you might say so um, in North America, United States, Canada, neither neither country has adopted widespread uh, mandatory contact tracing, digital surveillance, um, uh, mandatory isolation. We haven't had the really truly hard lockdowns like you've seen in parts of Europe, other parts of the world, or the kind of surveillance state that you have in uh, Asian countries that were um, uh, that did surveil a lot more. And so you might say um, that kind of reluctant slowness of government action, which obviously has been criticized quite a bit, um, and, and perhaps rightly, but it, that slowness, that unwillingness to to give up on privacy, um, things like this might reflect a kind of rights culture. Um, um, even if I think it does come at a cost, right? You, some people might say, well, if only government had been more proactive, if only they'd allow more surveillance, we could lower the death rate. And that might be true, but it seems like part of rights is, you know, they do come at cost, like they, they are not free. Um, and part of accepting the right is accepting those costs. Just like, you know, for instance, the right, 
uh, to have uh, of an accused criminal to have his guilt proven beyond a reasonable doubt means that there are a lot of people who are definitely guilty, but we can't prove it and they go free. And that's just a cost we accept for what we think of as a very important right. So yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, the, you know, when, when I guess it's all about the method to come back to that theme, when you talked about, you know, so say, would it have made sense to create a uh, security net that, you know, measured everybody's temperature um, all their biorhythms, you know, everything that you could about a person in order to stop the spread of COVID. And, you know, the initial thought of, and let's just make the hypo even harder, which is, yeah, it would work. It would have slowed the epidemic by X number of weeks. It would have saved the lives of so many people. And I think you and I share the intuition, which is no, <laughs> you know, partly because if, if it really was temporary, I might go for it, you know, that this was something that could be dismantled. But we know that that's not how surveillance works. Once you create the materials, they're there. I mean, so during the Bush administration, when Snowden was making his disclosures, whatever you think yeah, of him, right. you know, a, lot, a lot of people were saying, what's the big deal? You could trust the president, you know, whether it's Bush or later Obama. I don't think we feel that way now. I don't want Donald Trump <laughs> in charge of a security apparatus that can measure my temperature. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. You know, Snowden had a pretty good point, regardless of what you think of you know, him more generally. Yeah, I wonder to the degree to which that's an American, a sort of an American-specific intuition when Americans are famously, or, or believed anyway, to have lesser degrees of trust in their government than, say, other um, democratic, advanced democratic countries. So I wonder if you were in a country that had greater trust in institutions, whether there'd be more willingness to say, well, we we trust the government on these kinds of things. I don't know. I mean, I think we've got multiple strains. You know, one strain is the strain that says, um, what you what you just said, we're Americans, you can't, we have rights, you can't, you can't oppress us, <laughs> don't tread on me. Uh, I'm in New Hampshire right now, live free or die is on every single right. license plate. It's a little bit extreme, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. okay. It might be live free and die if you're not careful. <laughs> Yes, right. That's right. That should be the model. Live free and die. That's right. Uh, so, you know, but th there is another equally dangerous strain in the other extreme, maybe more, which is to, that we do. I think we, we trust that the president, a significant number of Americans trust that the president has their interests at heart and will act well in an emergency. At least I think that was very common, especially before Trump. I think now Trump and yeah. Nixon make you rethink that. And um, uh, but the way the statutes are set up is we have an emergencies act that gives the pre president a power to declare an emergency and can't be stopped unless there are two thirds of Congress that are willing to do it. We have, um, uh, you know, the insurgent, uh, sorry, the insurrection act. Uh, I don't know if I called it the insurgency act before it's called the insurrection act, uh, that, that basically hands over broad discretion to the president to use the military, despite other statutes and rights that limit it. Um, and so this sort of handover, it's this kind of schizophrenia. We have the rights culture on the other hand, and then the, 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 the massive um, power of the presidency, which to, to me, you know, the, yeah. the lesson of this is, yes, the extreme rights view is wrong, but also certainly we have to start as we come out of not just the pandemic, but hopefully the Trump presidency to, to think about how to, how to reform that office and, and not have yeah. that extreme power because it goes with a very dangerous consequentialist vision at best and at worst an even more dangerous Hobbesian, I am yeah. the sovereign yeah. kind of vision. Yeah.
I think, I think it's notable that many countries we've seen a sort of rally around the leader, leader kind of effects. Um, yeah. Even relatively unpopular leaders seem to people rally around them in times of, of emergency, but that um, seems not to be the case now in, in the United States. Um, support for Trump seems to have really eroded. Yeah, but I, I think he's, a, you know, it's because he's so incompetent and because he's so foolish and saying these things that we know to be false repeatedly. But imagine somebody slightly smarter than Trump and you have a very different effect and very dangerous. And after 9-11, sure. you know, you saw that especially yeah. um, with, with, with Bush. And you actually saw, I'm writing a piece about this now, two approaches about the Insurrection Act specifically. One, immediately after the 9-11, uh, John, you wrote a memo saying you could use the Insurrection Act to suppress rights, no problem. Uh, you know, safety is the most important thing. And then at the end of the Bush presidency, they say, hey, wait, that doesn't look right. And, um, yeah. you know, we saw that playing out too right now between the two approaches in, within the administration. Yeah, oh, it's just, it is remarkable when you say, uh, when you characterize sort of the, the, uh, the new conservatives, uh, the, the U memo as uh, their position of safety is the most important thing. Of course, that's what the public health people are saying now. Safety is the yeah. most important thing. That's why we have to limit rights. So it and does seem to be an uncomfortable parallel. Yes. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's Fauci and just the public health people, but it's what Trump was threatening to do with that idea that these protests were so dangerous to public order. And then in the background, of course, so dangerous to public health that we can yeah. use the military. And, you know, you have these two sides. You have the rights idea that you and I are talking about, and then you, you have this strong grant of executive power. And it was a very dangerous moment. He didn't yeah. mind doing it. He was pushed back. But the thing that I just will say, you know, for people watching this, the, the thing that is just wrong and that I really want to denounce are people who say that because he didn't use the military, he's not a dangerous president or he's not an aspirational dictator. Uh, being stymied in your plans doesn't mean that you didn't have it. <laughs> doesn't mean that next time somebody's not going to do it. You're laughing, yeah. but I mean, I'm seeing people yeah. say that. And the people I know well, if they're watching this, you know, you're, you're not making a good argument. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we don't have to imagine this. I mean, we've seen, I mean, with, in Hungary, for instance, or the situation in Hong Kong, I mean, um, emergency powers, emergency situations are a ripe time for autocrats, uh, uh, unfortunately. Um, so I think that's pretty much what I wanted to cover. Did you uh, have anything else you wanted to put on the table, Corey? It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Vincent. And, uh, you know, I guess I will just sort of say, there's a, a version of thinking about emergency that says that questions philosophical and questions in political philosophy and legal philosophy that we're asking, well, that's not important. We're in the emergency. So we should just, you know, act in a sort of expedient way. And that's a dangerous thought. We, it's great that you, you invite, that we got to sit down and have this yeah. conversation. And uh, I yeah. think it's important one to have. Well, I, I know of no, no, no more careful and thoughtful uh, thinker about uh, constitutional rights. Um, so I'm very glad that you were, had the time to uh, share your views. It's a very confusing situation that we're, we're going through. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank um, you. I appreciate you inviting me and we have a mutual admiration society. Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon, Corey. Yeah.